Hi, you're listening to the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast, episode three. I'm your host, Renee Teet. In today's episode, we talk to Shlomo Argaman, computer science professor and founding director of the Master of Data Science program at Illinois Institute of Technology. He talks to us about his path to data science, including research in robotic vision and natural language processing. And we also discuss the traits of a good data science student. And he gives some advice for those of us learning data science. At the end of the episode, I'll announce the next Data Science Learning Club activity related to asking business questions and communicating results. First, let's meet Shlomo Argamon. Hi, Shlomo. Hi, Renee. I wanted to start by asking you about your current status. You're a professor of computer, computer science at Illinois Institute of Technology, right? That's right. And you're also the director of the Master of Data Science program there? That's right. And how long have you been doing that? Well, we've uh, the the program has just entered its third year. Um, so we were there's a year or two of running up and setting up the program, and um, this is now the third year of the program. We have thirty master students currently, uh, with uh, a fair number set to come in in the spring, um, and it's it's growing by leaps and bounds, like like data science generally. Great. Okay, well, we'll come back and talk more about that program later. But first, I want to go back to your youth. I've been asking each of the interviewees, was there anything um, when you were a child that led you to believe that you were going to go into a field like this? Did you start out really good in math, or did you start programming early in life or anything like that? Well, yeah. Um, I, I've been interested in, in math and science generally since, um, well, since before I can remember, really. Um, uh, my father's an electrical engineer, so... Uh, I get some of that both, I guess, genetically and also by nurture. Um, and I was programming computers um, probably you know, by the time I was 10 or 11, which which in those days, which was more years ago than I'd like to admit, uh, was not, you know, not quite as common as it might be today. Um, I think I'm probably one of the youngest people who learned to program a programming language on punch cards. Oh, wow. Uh, which is quite an experience. Um and I was I was programming all through high school and taking classes over the summer at the, the local university uh, in, in, in computer stuff. Uh, although it was, it was kind of a toss-up for me in high school whether I wanted to go into computer science or microbiology. Okay. Uh, then when I hit my first lab, I decided computer science. So what were the undergrad and graduate schools that you went to? So I went to Carnegie Mellon undergraduate. Um, I did um, uh, my uh, bachelor's in applied math there. And I went to Yale for graduate school for my PhD. Okay. And at Yale, you did a project, your dissertation had to do with robotic vision, didn't it? Yeah. My, my, my dissertation had to do with um, both vision and map learning uh, for mobile robots. Okay. Tell us more about that. Sure. Um, I mean, this, I mean, this, this was long before uh, Roomba or anything like that. Um, and a big problem uh, then um, was how can a robot know where it is um, in, in, in an effective fashion? Um, sensors can get it just so far. Um, this is, again, this is also before GPS, which, which, which helps to a certain degree, but not always even in buildings. So the question is, um, if you put a robot in a building that it doesn't know anything about, how can it at the same time, build a map of its surroundings and also figure out uh, where it is as it goes. Um, if you think today, um, there, there are 
actually deployed rescue robots, which go into collapsed buildings or mine shafts mm-hmm. um, to to help uh, to help rescue teams. Um, and these and these robots um, often are in situations where communication isn't isn't really possible or feasible with the outside world. So they need to be able to figure out things things on the fly. So how do they do that? Um, sure. Uh, what what they do is. Um, they need to integrate information from different kinds of sensors, um, such as, for example, sonar to have some idea of where walls are, um, what objects are in the, in the vicinity, vision to be able to recognize things. Um, and then at, at future times, you need to match those, uh, that, that incoming information uh, with uh, remembered information and um, use um, statistical methods to you know, to probabilistically infer where is both both to infer where the robot is, and then based on your inference of where the robot is, update a model of the environment, where the walls are, what kinds of objects are in the environment, uh, and and so forth. And um, the um, you know the 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 techniques that I was the, the sort of the the angle that I had in my dissertation research was in doing this without the robot doing a lot of active exploration. So it's much easier to learn a map of your environment if you can develop a strategy for exploring. I'm going to turn right, and then I'm going to go back, and then I'm going to go left, and then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go back and forth to try to figure out what's in my environment. But to build a map of an to build an accurate map of one's environment while pursuing other tasks and not focusing on the learning task and pick, choosing actions and movements in order to do the learning task, that's much harder. Okay. Um, so that's that. That was really sort of the focus of my dissertation. Um, what I call their passive map learning, and there are other terms that are used as well. And if someone else wanted to go into research like that with robots, what are the most important classes that you took in college that made that possible? Um, well, one of the most important classes, which uh, I didn't realize that I was going to be doing this at the time, otherwise I would have paid more attention, <laughs> was statistics. Um, learning probability theory, uh, learning uh, different kinds of probability distributions, learning uh, statistics and statistical inference uh, was very important. Um, in particular, and this is something that I that they don't normally teach at the undergraduate level, Bayesian statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember particularly that when I took statistics as an undergrad, I found it very, very confusing and, and just kind of felt in my bones that it was just wrong in some way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize till I got to graduate school and started needing, and I needed statistical inference for my research. Uh, and then I learned about Bayesian statistical inference that I realized that, you know, it's not that I don't get statistics, it's that I'm just naturally a Bayesian. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and, and from then on, I, I love statistics, at least the Bayesian flavor. Yeah. When was it during your college career, or was it later, that you decided that you wanted to teach? Um. I always kind of had an idea in my head that I was going to be a professor and um, not quite sure where that came from. Um, I didn't really think about teaching much. Um, you know, in fact, in, uh, I know that in, in graduate school, I found that I really, really enjoyed when I was a teaching assistant. I really enjoyed working with, with students who would come to my office hours. Um, the, the challenge of explaining you know, complex technical concepts, which when you're used to them, they just kind of seem obvious. Mm-hmm. It's a real challenge to explain it in a way to somebody to whom they're new. 
uh, in a way that they can understand. And I really enjoyed that challenge. And I'm also and, interested and in learning about different learning styles. So how did the way that you learned it yourself, um, how did that inform you and how did that compare and contrast to the way other students learn when you teach? I have to say, honestly, that I, I haven't really introspected all that much about my own particular learning style. Mm -hmm. um, what, I've, what, I've, what I've tried to do in my teaching, you know, from my days in graduate school working with students and then uh, later on uh, as I learned to be a, a, a reasonably good lecturer and so forth, um, you know, I tried to, to look at the students and to try to understand where they're coming from and to see what, what are the conceptual difficulties or issues that they might be having. And one of the... Uh, one of the strategies, I guess you could say, that I use in my teaching is to explain things in multiple ways, um, to try to find different angles for explaining the subject, to explain things, for example, if I'm explaining um, something mathematical, to, to show the equations and to show diagrams and perhaps even animations where appropriate, um, to be able to help the students to build some sort of intuition about the problem at the same while at the same time giving them the detailed exposition so that they can actually get into the meat of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because, so, yeah. Yeah. What, what are the key things that they tend to be missing or get hung up on as master's students that they could focus, undergrads now could focus on more before they get to grad school to help them in this area? Well, I'll tell you the, the, the one thing that I see in a lot of our students um, is uh, the the ability to deal with unexpected difficulties, and this is mm -hmm. you know this is not a, it's not a specific technical area, but um, to be able to um, believe, in part, this is sort of a psychological thing. I know that this is not the expected answer, and this is not a, a specific subject that you need to study, uh -huh. but um, working and learning how to to uh, overcome unexpected difficulties. So, for example, to give you know just just an, uh, an example of this, if, say, I give an assignment that says, okay, here's, here's a data file, read in the data file, load it into a database, and do, this, do some kind of analysis on it. Um, and maybe the data file is in a CSV format. It's, it's, a, it's in a particular format, but there are some errors in the data file. So the standard load command doesn't work. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, you need to be able to say, okay, well, it doesn't work. Let me figure out what's going on, why it doesn't work, not just keep beating my head against the wall, but say, okay, well, let's look at the file. Let's try to figure out what errors might be in the file. Let's take a small piece of the file and try to load it in, see if, see if that works. Different kinds of just gener general problem-solving principles of being able to have these kinds of, of heuristics uh, or ideas to, to, to push through an unexpected difficulty. I mean, that's the sort of thing. I mean, in data science, we see this all the time. Data is never clean. Data is never perfect. There are always issues at, at all kinds of different levels. And we have to be able to, to, to get beyond that. And what I see in my experience, unfortunately, I, I think it's part of part of educational system sort of um, uh, in part perhaps causes or encourages this kind of mindset in that assignments and classes are very well defined, very clean, very perfect. So students know what the problem is that they're trying to solve, and so they solve that problem. In the real world, you get a problem, you're trying to solve problem A, but in order to solve problem A, you have to solve problems B, C, D, and E, and F that mm -hmm. you weren't counting on at all. So you have to have the confidence in yourself, um, have to have these kinds of problem-solving methods, um, general ideas on how to solve these problems uh, 
to be able to, to, to push through that. So for someone just starting out in data science, then it might be a good exercise to take what you just learned in a classroom setting or from a pre-cleaned data set online and try to do the same thing with a real world data set that you just grab from the internet somewhere. Absolutely. I, you know, one of the things that, I, that, I, that I, I tell our students all the time is to spend as much free time as they have, which I know they don't have very much of, but to spend their free time doing things like Kaggle contests and stuff and, 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 and similar kinds of um, uh, projects with real-world data um, oh, for, exa- nice. for exactly that reason. I would almost suggest that a great preparation would be um, for students if, 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 if they're, you know, people, you know, that have friends that are also interested in this to, to team up and to have one of them try to mess up the data in some way <laughs> and for the other, not to tell the other student and the other student to try to solve the problem and back and forth. That would yeah, be kind of a fun sort of adversarial contest kind of thing to, to, to learn to deal with these kinds of weird things. Great advice. Absolutely. So take us through a little bit of your career um, before, you know, after you finished grad school, but before your current job, what were some of the key highlights of, of your career? Well, um, when, when I got my PhD, as you, as, as you mentioned, I did my dissertation in uh, robot learning, um, machine vision and learning from mobile robots. Um, I then, um, I then did a, did a Fulbright at Bar Ilan University in Israel and getting, getting funding to build a robot lab there was, was not a, was not a trivial task. Uh, fortunately I had an office mate uh, who was doing research in natural language processing. Um, and he suggested an interesting research project to me and I said, okay, sure. Let's look at that. Uh, and from then on, I've been doing research in, in, in natural language processing instead. Oh, so just because um, the funding was available, you were able to jump on that right away? Fun, fun, funding was, was not only more available, it's also less necessary. Okay. I didn't have to build, you know, build a lab and machines and all, all of that kind of stuff. Um, right. So it's a bit cheaper to get started. Um, but it, it's, you know, but I love it. Um, one of the things that I love about, about working in this field is that it's a very, very interdisciplinary um, I'm using computer science and linguistics, and there's some philosophy and, of course, cognitive science, logic, statistics, you know, all of these things kind of coming together. Um, and that's kind of like where, where I like to situate myself, um, just because it, it's just much more interesting to me. Yeah, and I saw on your profile you have some really interesting natural language projects. So can you detail a couple of those for us? Sure. Um, uh, possibly one of one of the more interesting ones, and, and uh, one of the ones that got me into my my, my current um, line of research that I've been doing for the last uh, almost twenty years, I guess, is um, a colleague and I, a colleague of mine and I uh, did some did some research looking at whether we could um, uh, whether whether a computer program could use machine learning to distinguish between writing by men and writing by women. So could we figure out whether the author uh, of an article or a book or a novel uh, was a man or a woman, uh, and it turns out that the answer is uh, most of the time yes. Uh, we can we can tell the difference between seventy and eighty percent um, of the time whether the, whether the author is a man or a woman purely by the writing style. And we're not talking about what the what they're writing about. So certainly, I mean, there's all kinds of stereotypical correlations between what men write about and what women write about. But even if we say we took articles, you know, you know, if we took articles, say all from Wired by male journalists and female journalists, uh-huh. um, we would probably be able to distinguish 70 to 80% accuracy between, between them based you know, simply on, on 
subtle differences in the style of writing. And did you look at whether that was dependent on culture or is that across the board? Well, to a certain extent, we can say that, that it's fairly culturally independent, actually, um, because we are, the initial research that we did uh, was looking at 20th century British English, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, but since then, um, we've looked at 18th century French novels. Uh, we've looked at uh, characters in plays. We've looked at um, 19th, late 19th century, early 20th century plays from the Caribbean. Uh, we've looked at characters in Shakespeare's plays, the male characters versus hmm. the female characters. And what we see is, first of all, that we can distinguish with approximately the same accuracy in all of these cases, and also that the, the features of the writing style are very similar in all of these cases. Now, what we haven't looked at, say, 12th century Chinese literature um, or, you know, further afield. I mean, we're looking still mm -hmm. sort of with a European, relatively recent European tradition. But it, it gives some indication that there may be some, you know, if not, you know, universals, but at least some 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 current um, you know, breadth to this to this finding. So with the, the Shakespeare part of the study, so those were all written by the same person, right. well, theoretically. <laughs> but um, right. so what if you were looking at the characters, what were you then distinguishing? So it was how he wrote each of the, the males or females? Right. What words he put into the in, into the mouths of the males versus the females. Mm -hmm. um, and how does and, that differ from something written by a female? Well, what was interesting is, is that the differences that we saw between the way the the way Shakespeare's females talk and his males talk is very similar to the differences that we see between the way um, female authors in the, the 20th century write and male authors in the 20th century write. Wow. Um, we see the same kinds of differences in features. We see that. Um, to, to give some examples of, of the features, we see that men typically, and again, I, I'm speaking statistically here, so, so on average, um, mm -hmm. men use more nouns compared to verbs, and they use more adjectives and determiners uh, related to those nouns, which is to say that, um, to put it in a, in a very overly simplified stereotypical way, men talk about things and the qualities of those things. Um, right. Women tend to write and female characters in Shakespeare tend to tend to talk using using more verbs, more pronouns, um, and um, there are a few other categories of words that they use more more frequently than men, which indicate that they're more putting the relationship between the the writer and the reader or the speaker and the hearer into the in, into the context of the conversation. Okay. Uh, these two different styles uh, have been called, you know, an informational style versus an involved style. Huh, and interesting. Not our terms. And it, 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 it seems to hold pretty consistently across different kinds of texts and different, different eras, as I've said. Um, I can't really comment on why. So what kind of programming languages or data science tools did you, do to the, the, to, did you use to do those studies? Okay, well, the, these studies, um, I'm trying to remember... Uh, well, one, one tool that we've used a lot um, just throughout the years is Weka, uh, which is a great tool for, for machine learning. I mean, now um, there are all kinds of other machine learning libraries um, that, are, that are incredibly useful. Um, Scikit-learn uh, is, is, is a very, very helpful one in Python. Um, and there are lots, there are, there are lots of others. Um, at the time, we were building our own natural language processing uh, engines uh, to figure out things like parts of speech and so forth. And now there are, there are libraries like NLTK um, uh, or Gate 
uh, which give give a lot of facility in these areas. Um, there, there are lots of lots of very useful tools these days, um, you know, Python and so forth, in different okay. languages. And is that something that you teach the students at Illinois Institute of Technology? Yeah, um, one of the courses that I teach, I teach a course in natural language processing, where the students learn. Um, a little bit how to use how to use these libraries, but also how to build the the underlying techniques themselves. Um, and they're typically working in in either Java or Python. Um, and we're, I, I, we're pretty open about what kind of programming languages they use. Um, we we make sure that all of our students know Java. Um, they all know they all learn Python. Um, R as well um, is very big, especially in our statistics classes. They use R for a lot of for for a lot of the work. And these are these are kind of very fundamental languages. So let's talk about that program a little bit more. What are the different backgrounds of students coming in and, and what can they expect to learn other than just the programming languages? Right. Well, we, we, one of the things that we aim, aim to have is we aim to have a fairly diverse student body. Um, the majority of our students do come from computer science or applied mathematics and statistics backgrounds. Um, but we also have a fair number of people uh, with backgrounds in the science, in, in the other, in sciences like physics and biology. Um, we have people with backgrounds in business. Um, we have at least uh, one, one person with a, with a uh, bachelor's in history. So, you know, we try to keep, you know, sort of a wide variety of backgrounds, uh, keeping in mind that in data science, um, it's really important to be able to work with people from very different backgrounds and also to bring all of the knowledge that you have to bear uh, to your to, to the problems that you're addressing. Um, creativity is a huge factor uh, in how you address a problem. And somebody with, with just a purely narrow technical focus is not going to be the most successful data scientist because you have to have a, have a certain amount of breadth um, and ability to sort of think outside the box, talk to people who are non-technical and understand their problems and how you might be able to help them. Yeah, and in what your in experience in industry and in teaching, um, what type mm -hmm. of people really bring the most to the, the projects and, and or what students really team, seem to succeed the most? I mean, what are the key features that you identify and say, yeah, that's going to be a great data scientist? Well, I, I um, you know, the, the program's only been around for three years. So, you know, I can't say, you know, 10 years out, our students are doing X, Y, Z. So I don't, right. I, I can't really say that. I can't give you a data-based answer for that. I can, <laughs> I can give you some, some anecdotes, but not, not any data. Uh -huh. um, there are, there are really kind of two, two key factors. Um, and they're not technical factors. One is, uh, and, and I'm not being original in, in, in these observations. I, uh, other people have said similar things. Curiosity, mm -hmm. um, interest in asking questions and saying, hmm, that's funny. I wonder what's going on here. Um, that, that, that is a quality that enables people to really get down um, and, and find out interesting, novel, uh, and important things. Um, and the other thing is communication. And when I say communication, I mean primarily the ability to listen, hmm. the ability to hear uh, what, um, what clients are interested in, um, and also to be able to sometimes hear what the clients are actually not saying. Um, because often what happens is uh, somebody comes in with a data science problem and says, um, I'd like you to do this analysis so that I can um, improve my marketing or whatever it happens to be. But the real problem is a little bit different than what they think. Mm -hmm. And if the data scientist is able to, to talk and to listen to the client 
they can often figure out that, well, they want me to do this analysis, but if I actually give them this visualization, it might be a little bit more helpful to them. Hmm. Yeah, so, and that's true as an analyst too, that just understanding the problem rather than you know, listening to what the person's right. saying, uh, listening to what's the, the subtext of what they're really trying to get at is really important. Exactly. What's the real problem here that they're trying to solve? Not the problem they're giving me, but their problem. Um, and and those those students who are able and willing to do that to sort of step outside their technical mindset and you know almost you know put themselves in in, in the position of their client to say okay well, what would I want what do I need and then to come back into the technical and say well okay here's what I can give them that might be helpful. So um, what are some examples of projects that your students are doing that kind of emulate those real world situations? Well, one of the things that one of the things that we have in the program is a, a practicum, which is run over the summer. And these are projects that our students typically work in, in teams between two and four, with with actual industrial partners. So our partners um, supply usually supply data. Um, they supply um, some problems, sometimes more or less at different levels of specificity, and our students work uh, to try to find useful insights uh, in the data uh, for our clients. So um, last, last summer, um, we had, we had a no, several interesting projects. Um, one of them was looking at uh, complaints about medical devices. Hmm. And um, actually, nearly all of our projects last year just coincidentally had to do with, you know, involved natural language processing, which you know, was good for me. <laughs> um, and uh, what, what the students did on, on this project is they looked at these complaints about medical devices and tried to find correlations between um, different, kind, different, different kinds of devices, different manufacturers' devices, and the kinds of, of problems that arose with the devices. Um, and um, there was, there, there was some, um, i trying to remember some, some specific insights uh, that we got, but there was, there was definitely some interesting stuff there, and uh, the company... Uh, is 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 running with this um, uh, to use this information both to to feedback information to the to the manufacturers so they know you know what are the areas that they might want to focus in on um, but also for potential possibly consumer facing information so that consumers um, so that um, if if somebody say needs a hip replacement different kinds of patients with different kinds of conditions or uh, different demographics might want a different might want one kind of hip or a different kind of hip okay. Um, depending on on where uh, on who they are and where they're coming from, um, that's that one example of of of, of a project. Um, you know, other projects that we've looked at is we've looked at um, looking at um, say uh, hotel or or product reviews, and trying to to summarize perhaps hundreds or even thousands of reviews on a particular product in a way that's useful to a consumer. So if you come to um, Orbitz or, uh, or, or Expedia and you see, you're looking for a hotel and you see, you know, there are 7,000 reviews for 20 different hotels. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I make sense of all those reviews to get some idea of where I might want to stay? And first, I want to know, is it a good hotel or is it a bad hotel? But more than that, I have particular interest in what's important to me mm-hmm. and what's important to you might be very different. Right. So I want to know what are the reviews are saying that are that's relevant to me. So the the question here is to to be able to extract the information of you know what are the different factors that people are evaluating the reviews. 
what are they saying about it, whether positive or negative, and then summarizing it in some way that gives useful information uh, to, to the customer. That um, and great. Part of, part of what the students did, they, they, they did some standard, th they, did, they used word clouds, which, which can often be very helpful. Um, they um, produced little graphs showing um, positive versus negative um, overall averages over different facets. Mm -hmm. And then one of the more interesting things is to see how those, those ratings change over time. So seeing the trends, you can see, is, is the hotel on an upward trend? Is it on a downward trend? Maybe things look bad, but it's only just now that, that they're looking bad. So um, could you tell, like, when there was a renovation at the hotel and things suddenly got better? Well, in principle, I don't, you know, I don't think we actually saw anything like that. But I think uh -huh. that, you know, in, sort of in principle, that's the kind of thing that, that, uh, uh, that you'd like to be able to see. But, but, but looking at the trends, you know, sometimes you, you, you saw something looked really good, but you can see that it's been improving. Uh-huh. Uh, in some cases. Um, Those sound like great projects for students. So I know you don't have that, they haven't been out for very long yet, but what are some of the initial types of jobs that your students are getting when they graduate? Well, um, there's a, actually a variety uh, of different kinds of jobs. We have uh, some students who are working for really data science oriented firms, um, you know, like data science consultancies, mm -hmm. um, you know, working, working as, working as data science, data scientists, um, you know, doing, Data, you know, data preparation and, and analytics and so forth. Um, we have students uh, working for um, company for large companies that have their own analytics departments, like um, particularly in the insurance industry. Mm -hmm. um, I think the insurance industry is 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 uh, really growing in terms of their use of data scientists. Um, uh, in in you know, together together with sort of more traditional actuarial ana analysis. Um, and that's that's been a very fruitful area. Um, and we actually have um, uh, at least one student working, you know, working for a manufacturing firm, which sees the use of of, of, of data science um, to to analyze um, to analyze. I, I think what they're what they're mainly looking at uh, is they're looking at um, at their customer base uh, to try to to improve. Uh, their product lines for their customers by by looking by looking at data both on the reliability of their products uh, as well as you know who's buying what when and where, uh, which 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 I think is 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 a great area for for for, for improvement. Yeah. So, is there any other research or any publications that in your personal history that you want to highlight that we didn't talk about yet? Well, I think that um, well, in in, first first of all, in terms of, in terms of my research. Um, you know, another another sort of area another area of, of of recent work that I've been doing is in looking at metaphors in in human language. One of the things, and this 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 is right, this arises a lot in in um, questions like sentiment analysis, which are very big um, areas for natural language processing in in, in data science, in particular, mm -hmm. is the fact that lots of human language is not literal. It's not simple. It's not um, you know that movie was good, that movie was awful. Right. Um, but um, things that are that are more metaphorical, things like um, you know, that movie deserves to be dropped down a well and forgotten about, <laughs> um, perhaps um, that might be easier to figure out that it's negative. Um, but that's that like sort of being, that's, that, um... that sort of language. And so I, I've been been looking at the question of how can we get computers first of all to recognize metaphorical language, um, and then to understand what it means. 
Um, and then there, there are multiple implications of being able to do that. One of them, as I said, is, is for better sentiment analysis, but also simply just to better understand, understand documents. Um, yeah, I would think that something like sarcasm would be really difficult. Sarcasm is a hugely difficult problem. Um, and you know, I'm not even touching sarcasm yet myself, <laughs> um, but we're going to get there. Um, mm -hmm. And there, there are people who are working on it. Um, it's much easier if somebody says hash sarcasm at the end of a tweet than you <laughs> right. sarcastic. Um, very helpful when people do that. But, but yeah, sarcasm is a very, very hard thing. It's, it's hard for people to do mm -hmm. uh, often. Um, but, um, but being able to get at those sort of deeper la layers uh, of meaning and language is kind of a theme, theme in my research. And in terms of the metaphor stuff, the metaphor stuff, um, my approach is very, very data centric. Um, the idea is we're building, you know, as large uh, as we can, you know, huge corpora of texts to look at statistical patterns of which, which words and phrases go together with which other words and phrases. So, for example, um, to take an example of a metaphor, um, if, if you say, um, uh, she's a really sweet kid. Mm -hmm. So that's a metaphor because sweet typically applies to food, right. not to people. Now, how do you know that? Well, if, you, if, we have, if we take a huge, huge corpus of English language and we look at all of the uses of the word sweet, we can see that it's often used for food and sometimes used for people. Mm -hmm. um, but even more than that, we see that there's a whole cluster of adjectives that go together that are used for food, specifically for taste of food. And many of them are also used for people. So we can find that there's a sort of this, this sort of metaphorical cluster, sweet, bitter, sour, um, you know, I don't know what else, um, uh, other kinds of adjectives. And then we start, a meaning starts to emerge from that. And then we see that tastes for food correspond to um, personalities of people. Hmm. Right? So you can start to figure out that sweet is good even when it's applied to something else. Right, but, but not just that sweet is good, but it's saying something about the personality of this person, not just this person is good, but this person's personality is good in some way. Okay. Right, and then you have a better idea of what it actually means. That's really interesting. So you're using right. sentiment analysis along with the linguistics. That's right. That's okay. right. Um, you know, and, and, and another area that, that I'm, I'm very interested in, we've really only just started, this is sort of more on the educational side, um, haven't really published anything about this yet, is data science ethics. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we have in our curriculum and we're working on improving, um, in conjunction, Illinois Tech has, um, has a center for um, ethics in the professions, um, which you know, works both within our institution and with many other institutions to develop curricula for, for, eth for ethics in education in different professions, primarily scientific and engineering, but, but not only. And we're working with them to develop curricula for our students to think about ethical questions in the profession of data science um, well and properly. And, you know, I mean, as, as I, I'm sure you know, I mean, it, we, we don't yet have in data science a generally accepted ethical code for right. professionals. And it's hugely, hugely important mm -hmm. um, because our clients depend on us uh, in, to, to give them accurate and clear information in ways, 
in that they can't really understand the assumptions that go into the models, the implications of those assumptions, the caveats that come along with different kinds of very technical or statistical assumptions or the algorithms that we use. And we have to be able to explain these things to them, and they're relying on us, right? Yeah, definitely. So and so much of that is just guidance. hidden. That's right. That's right. So we have to, we, I mean, we have to be able to think clearly about these things and also communicate clearly about them. And um, we don't have the answers yet as to, to how to teach this or what principles uh, should be applied. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's very, very important. And we're looking at these issues. Yeah, that's great to hear. I've recently done some reading on um, bias that can be introduced into algorithms. And um, mm -hmm. I wrote a little article about, you know, challenging data scientists to even think about these things. And like you said, be right. able to explain to your clients what biases could possibly be, um, you know, included mm -hmm. in the algorithms based on the data that was collected or how it was cleaned or how it's being um, assessed. So um, how do you talk about those types of things to your students um, even before there's a, you know, formal ethics class, um, how do you talk to them about bias, you know, in these data studies? Well, what we've been doing so far, and, it's, and we're very aware that this is not, not where we will be yet. This is, this is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, we, we introduced them to some of these case studies, um, case studies of, of, of bias um, that, have been, that have been reported and been written about, um, so they can see what the issues are. Um, and we can also talk about, because they understand the statistics, um, we, can, we can talk about where these biases come from in, in otherwise, the algorithm itself isn't biased, but because mm -hmm. of certain underlying correlations of the data, bias comes out of it. Right. Um, so the question is, you know, so, so they should be aware of it. Um, we talk about the implications uh, of this bias. And, you know, we talk about different ways in which they might be able to recognize this bias uh, and uh, potentially correct for it. And of course, when you correct for one bias, you might introduce another bias. Right. So there, there's a balancing act that has to be done. But the, but, the, but the first and the most important step in where we're starting is to recognize issues or to recognize potential issues. Um, that, that's kind of, I think, the key thing. And I think this, this, this ties back to something we were talking about earlier, which is the best data scientist is somebody who um, is very technically effective within their technical area, but can step out of it as, ne as needed. Right. can see that there's a world beyond it. And the best technical solution might have implications beyond the technical problem that's being solved. And bias is, is, is a perfect example of this. And what we try to do to teach our students and, um, is to be able to recognize these kinds of issues and as best as possible to be able to address them. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that you guys are teaching that in the program. Well, um, everybody, I have been talking to Shlomo mm -hmm. Argamon, and um, he's the director of the Masters of Data Science program at IIT. And I want to thank you, Shlomo, for joining me today. This was really informative, and it gives both the perspective of the teacher and the student. So I'm really glad you could be part of our initial set of interviews uh, for the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Now let's talk about the Data Science Learning Club. It's growing, 50 people have introduced themselves in the meet and greet thread, and several people have started sharing their results from the first few activities. 
If you haven't joined us yet, it's never too late. Just check out becomingadatascientist.com slash learning club. So far, we've been exploring data sets, both statistically and visually. Now that we've determined what type of data is in our data set, how it's distributed, and how the different columns relate to one another, we should know what kind of questions we might be able to answer using the data. In this activity, I talk about business questions, but it doesn't have to be business-related, like marketing or sales. It could be a scientific research question. What I mean by a business question is that it's not just a question that an analyst would ask of the data, but a question that someone may ask that an analyst would say, I can do some analysis and help you answer that. Now, if we do an analysis, we also have to be able to communicate the results to explain to that person how it does or doesn't answer the question that they asked and how the business person should interpret our results. So I want you to create a communication document this week. It could just be a post in the Learning Club forums or a blog post or a Word document or a slide presentation or even a YouTube video. It should be in a question and answer format. Knowing what question your data can help answer, state the question and why someone might ask it. Give a short answer, explain how you analyze your data to find the answer, and remember this is for a general non-data scientist audience. Then make sure to explain any catches, how confident you are that your data answers the question, what other analyses might need to be done to get the full picture, what you're not answering, etc. The key is to make sure that your explanation is clear, but also that someone can't easily misconstrue your conclusion into something else because it was too vague. So I look forward to seeing your results, and be sure to ask for input from the other club members when you're ready, and give constructive feedback to those of us who ask for it. We're all learning together and we can help one another. And of course, post your code and how you developed your visualizations and everything like that if possible. And anything you learned during the activity, share it with us. So my name is Renee Teet, and this was the third interview podcast episode. You can find videos of the interviews on the Becoming a Data Scientist channel on YouTube and links to the topics and tools referenced by the guests at my blog, becomingadatascientist.com. I love hearing feedback about the podcast, so post a comment on the blog or tweet me at becomingdatasci on Twitter. And thanks for listening. Bye.